rain. You would never think of that. You would never think that this person on a donkey going down a path will have a, a global rain from sea to sea and rivers to the ends of the earth. But that's what's, hap that's what's going to happen. That's our king. That's our Messiah. That's who is, is, uh, is coming. And the king will ultimately subdue all the enemies and, and bring about eternal peace. That's the goal. Uh, we have talked about it before. He says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. The world gives peace when there's no fighting and no battles. He gives a peace that passes all understanding uh, in the heart. And then verse 11 through 17 is a section that uh, I've called Yahweh subdues his enemies and brings peace to his people. It's a further uh, uh, explanation. Uh, Mr. Webb's outline is uh, Zechariah 9, 1 to 8, the coming of the warrior God. Uh, verses 9 through 10, uh, the coming of the king. And verse 11 through 17, God's people sharing in the victory of the king. And it turns, in a sense, from the Messiah, the king coming in, uh, to those who were associated with him and uh, share in the victory. These are the people who receive the benefits uh, from Yahweh's actions. And as I mentioned already, many of the commentators say this is all uh, about the gospel. So verse 11 uh, uh, says, as for you, it goes back to the daughter of Zion. Uh, uh, right? Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He, he continues that thought. As for you, daughter of Zion, those who recognize him as king, and then besides the coming of his kingdom and the reign of peace, here are additional blessings. There's various pictures of Yahweh and his salvation for his people, and a combination of physical and spiritual imagery, which by now in our studies in the Minor Prophets we are uh, very familiar with. There's a combination uh, of war and peace, uh, but the result is salvation and spiritual rest uh, for his people. But notice, notice the focus on God and what God says he will do. Uh, verses uh, 11 through 13, first, I have set your prisoners free. I am declaring that I will return. Uh, verse 13, I will bend, I will fill, I will rouse, I will make. Verse 14, Yahweh will appear. He, he will have his arrow, he'll blow the trumpet and go into the storm winds of the south. Uh, verse 15, Yahweh of hosts will defend. And then three other actions. Verse 16, Yahweh their God will save. Uh, God is uh, doing all this action. Your king is coming, and God is going to make sure uh, that all these things take place. Some of the commentators talk about verses 11 and 12 as freedom uh, and hope. Uh, and, and as I said, some of them say uh, this is uh, gospel freedom and gospel hope. There's current... <clears throat> Uh, current and future blessing. Remember, we're in Zechariah. They're talking about the temple. We've got to get the temple built. So there's current and future blessing. And then God says, because of the blood of your covenant. Several of the 
translations put my in there and make it God's covenant, but the majority in the Hebrew say the blood of your covenant. And you would think, well, well, why is he mentioning the blood of the people's covenant? Well, because it was inaugurated in Exodus 24 and verse 8, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses preached this whole sermon. Moses preached to them and told them what was going to happen and then sprinkled this blood and brought them into the covenant. And God enacted a covenant with them and all the people with him and blood was sprinkled and words were said that ratified the, the covenant. Uh, two, two quotes that help. Uh, Hengstenberg says, the covenant blood which still separates the church and the world. There's an important distinction, isn't it? You're in a blood covenant with God. You're separated from other nations. We're in a blood covenant with Christ. We're, the church is separated from the world. People think you believe in the Savior who died on a cross? That's disgusting. But that's how God ordained it. That's how God ordained that Moses is sprinkling blood on the people. And Hengstenberg says, the covenant blood which still separates the church and the world from one another was therefore a certain pledge to the covenant nation of deliverance out of all their trouble. So long that it is to say, as, it did not as they did not render the promise nugatory, that's a new word for me, it means invalid or without force, by wickedly violating the conditions imposed by God. And think about God saying, your covenant if I asked you, are you in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ tonight as I speak to you? You, you would say, well, yeah, I, I hope so. I struggle like this. But you see the pressure by the blood of your covenant. They might have said, well, wait a minute. You, you brought us into that. We, what did they do? They were in the situation that they were in, rebuilding the temple because they broke it. Kylan Dalich says, Prisoners of hope is an epithet applied to the Israelites because they possess in their covenant, uh, uh, in their covenant blood, a hope of redemption. There's there's a hope of redemption in the blood. There's a covenant, but it speaks of redemption, and it leads us all the way to Hebrews, doesn't it? And that Hebrews breaks it all down. Here's the blood that they were under. Here's what you're under. Many things of this, many things of that, many things of this. Only one. Imperfection over here. Perfection over here. Perfect Savior. Perfect everything. What happened? The people broke the covenant. It's not surprising that the word prisoners is used twice in these verses. They were prisoners in their own city under siege. They were prisoners taken captive and marched hundreds of miles into exile. You remember some of the passages said they put fish hooks in the people. Right? You, you, you all seen some old movie or something like that, right? The person's tied up and they're dragging them through the desert. That's what happened to them. They got dragged hundreds and hundreds of miles attached to each other, uh, kicked and pushed, get moving, get moving, get going. They were prisoners. And they were prisoners in a foreign land for 70 years. And Yahweh turns it around. Notice, notice where they get taken out of. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And the waterless pit 
was a bad place. Uh, these pits were dug to trap and keep prisoners, and there was no provision in the pit. It wasn't like they threw down food and stuff like that. Here's your next meal. Uh, there was no provisions. Joseph was put in a pit to die until Judah said, why should we kill him? Let's sell him. Why have blood on our hands when we can make some money? And Reuben went back to get him out of there because he knew if he stayed there, he would die. And then he's not there. And they came up with a plan B, didn't they? He was put in the pit to die. Jeremiah was put into a cistern to die. Uh, it wasn't a waterless place. It was a nasty place. David says of his enemies in Psalm 57, 6, they dug a pit for me. Here, let's dig this pit, right? Let's dig this pit and let's get David and get him into the pit. Kill him. Get rid of him. Uh, Joseph evidently ends up in a pit again, Genesis 40, verse 15 and 41, 14. He tells the, uh, uh, he tells the, the baker and the cupbearer, it's somebody, he says, I've been in the pit. And then, and then the guy, remember, it's two years later, and the cupbearer says, wait a minute, I know a guy who interprets dreams, and it says they took him out, they rushed him out of the pit. They said, come on, you got to get shaved, you got to get cleaned up, you got to go interpret a dream. What a crazy thing that Pharaoh calls for a prisoner in his dungeon, and the guy's going to interpret it, and then David is the second in command later that day. What an amazing thing. But he was in the pit. He, he was done. God says, you've been set free. I've set my, I'll set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Where were they in Babylon? It's as if they were in a pit. Where were they in all their spiritual difficulty? Where is a sinner? Uh, some of the commentators say that. Where is a sinner? He's in a waterless pit. You're never going to get out. And there's no provision in there. And then he, uh, it goes on to say, return to the stronghold. Return to Jerusalem. Uh, prisoners who have hope. Th that, that's odd too, isn't it? Who can give a prisoner hope? Uh, only God can give a prisoner hope. Only the king coming can give a prisoner hope. How are you going to give a prisoner hope? But he calls them prisoners who have hope. It's hope to rebuild, but it's also hope in the words that they just saw. Your king is coming. We talked about it before. It's amazing, isn't it, how anticipating they were. The two, the two blind men on the road, or the one blind man on the road. He lifts up his voice. And he says, son of David, have mercy on me. They, they, they were right there. The questions that, that were just asked in John chapter 7. Could this be the Messiah? Is this really him? The, the guys go to arrest him and they come back. We're not arresting him. Why, why didn't you bring him? Nobody ever spoke like this. Can you imagine what he said in a short period of time? Prisoners of hope return to the stronghold, the stronghold of Jerusalem, the, the stronghold of uh, the gospel. And and God says, this very day, I'll return double to you. And I needed some help, but I think, I, I think John Trapp talks about this uh, or talks correctly. What is doubled? 
Their life and their liberty was doubled. Their grace and their glory was doubled. They doubled what they could hope for figuratively. I never expected we'd get out of Babylon. I never expected we'd come back to our land. I never expected we'd rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. I never expected that. They didn't. They didn't. Haggai and Zechariah are, are busy turning these people around and moving them and, and saying, think about what's going on. I'm on your side. Be strong. The Spirit's with you. I'm in your midst. Come on, let's go. They never thought it would happen. The trap says what was doubled? Their, their, the multiple mercies to them was doubled. And, and the adversity compared with their greater prosperity was doubled. And do we ever see Jerusalem as the biggest, most rich, populous city in the world? We never do. No, because it's connected also with spiritual things. And then an interesting verse is uh, verse 13. Uh, all of the translators have the word Greece. I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will rouse up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a mighty man's sword. There are some good reasons to connect this uh, with Alexander the Great. That's the next Greece that comes along. Uh, uh, several, uh, uh, several, a number of years later, maybe within 200 years or so, but you remember uh, that Alexander conquers everything and sets the stage uh, for the Romans to conquer everything. And then all of a sudden, not in battle, someplace in 323 BC, Alexander the Great dies. But their enemy is gone. Their, their great enemy is gone. And, and a, a Jew who would look at this could say that God defeated Greece. God took care of our enemy. The Greeks came and took over everything. All they were after that was a, a city-state, very weak. There were some rebellions. They had the Seleucid Empire. They had the Egyptian Empire. But they, they were there, but Greece was gone. It's interesting that the New Testament uh, was translated into, into Greek. But that's part of those kingdoms, too. That's part of those kingdoms of Daniel, isn't it? God's going to take this kingdom out, this kingdom out. This one looked like it was really strong. This one I don't know. That's kind of like iron mixed with clay. And here comes this little stone and takes them all down. And then verses 14 through 17, as we uh, go through, uh, God mightily saves his people. Uh, verse 14 and 15 are similar in the sense that there's a, a, a head statement and then things underneath. Verse 14, Yahweh will appear over them, and then three things. And verse 15, Yahweh of hosts will defend them, and then uh, a, a number of things. Four powerful images. These are warrior images. Yahweh will appear over them, uh, like an army in battle array. I just w was uh, listening yesterday, uh, and they mentioned, or, or they were reading Second Chronicles, and King Asa came against, uh, I forget what nation, a million people, a million warriors, and so many chariots. And they came out in battle array. And somehow, King Asa 
defeated them by the power of God. His arrow, like lightning, lightning quickly, powerfully, sudden, suddenly and dramatically, like a lightning strike, it's going to come. Uh, verse 13 uh, brings us back to verse 12, these powerful images. The Lord Yahweh will sound the trumpet. He is the ultimate general of the armies of heaven and earth, uh, initiates the battle, initiates the battle, calls the troops, gets them together. And then comes like the storm winds of the south. I will make you like, oh, I missed it. And, and we'll go in the storm winds of the south. So you understand the desert environment there. And uh, once again, if you've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, you've seen a terrible dust storm. And everybody just tries to cover up and they, you can't breathe, you can't see, you, you can't do anything. And that's the picture. God says, I'm going to come like this storm and, and, and utterly take over everything. Isaiah 21.1, as the whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a fearsome land. It's, Isaiah says, it's just like this desert where the, the weather changes and now you're, you're in the midst of this uh, tremendous dust storm that will literally uh, uh, reshape the entire landscape. Verse 15, similar to verse 14, a statement of Yahweh's action followed by pictures of what he did. Verse 14, I'll appear over them. Verse 15, Yahweh of hosts will defend them. How will he do it? Uh, there, there are some differences in translations here. Please note uh, the, the Geneva and the New King James say they uh, shall devour them and subdue them, the enemies, right? Them is the enemies, uh, with sling stones. And the New King James, they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. And there's no thems in the New King James. Uh, the ESV, the, the legacy and the New American Standard uh, say pretty much uh, they will consume and trample on the stones of a sling. So either... They will be like an army that takes slings and throws the stones, or as stones are being thrown at them, there will be no effect. They'll just step right on these stones that are being uh, thrown. They'll, they'll consume and, uh, and trample down the stones. No, no armament against them will be able to stop them from devouring and, and conquering uh, the enemies. Uh, to devour or consume, it, it means take over completely subdue or tread down it's be totally victorious trample your enemies down the enemy sling stones have no effect they just walk over them or they they uh, defeat them with those things and then there's the images of uh, blood and wine this is a this is a little more uh, graphic and they will drink and roar as with wine and they will be filled like a sacrificial bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. These blood pictures come from the, from the temple. It'll be like that. There'll be blood all over. It's not, a, it's not an unfamiliar prophetic picture because we've seen that before. The, the, God's talked about blood being all over the place. There's blood in the bowls, there's blood on the altar, there's blood on the priest that 
that he has to touch things. There, there's blood on the ground. There's blood on the sacrifice. There's blood on the offerer. There, there's blood everywhere. And that's the picture. It's just going to be like that. It'll be like they're drunk with blood. Before he said that he would destroy, he would take the people that had the blood in their mouth, the bad picture. And here, this will be a picture of their enemies. Just, just blood all over the place. And then finally, what I've called the post Israel's post-victory, peace, and prosperity. Uh, notice again, Yahweh's action, I will save them, verse 16. And then there's that, there's that uh, familiar, in that day. And we say, when, when is that day? Uh, right now, right then, he saved them from their enemies. Remember the visions the, the horses went all over the place. They came back and they said, there's peace on the earth. The last vision said the same thing. There's peace on the earth. The chariots went out and there's peace. So it happened right then. Uh, but there's, there's coming salvation for the people in that day. In the day the Lord returns. When is that? I don't know. But he's coming back. You've got to be ready. You've got to see it. It's all in God's plan. When is it? It's in that day. It's a description of who they are. Notice, they're a flock of his people. And, here's a second description, they are stones of a crown sparkling in the land. Like gems, like individual gems. Here's a description of their condition, two descri descriptions of their condition. It, it, it's exclaimed, how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty in the in the Geneva Bible, the ESV has something uh, similar. Uh, how great is its goodness and its beauty? It's, uh, it's extolling what's going on. The, the LSB says, for what goodness and what beauty will be theirs? That's the idea. God's going to give them uh, uh, goodness and beauty. Uh, they'll be his flock. They'll be like stones of a crown. They'll be like sparkling in the land. And the exclamation is, what beauty and goodness is going to be theirs? That's what God is going to bring about. And then the, the second description of the, their condition in verse 17, we're familiar with these pictures. Grain will make the choice men flourish and new wine the virgins. The virgins will flourish with new wine. And, and you know that uh, that's a picture. If you have wine and grain and oil, you're good. If you don't have wine and grain and oil, uh, that's bad. And how many times have we seen in the minor prophets, God's going to take away the grain, take away the oil, take away the wine. And how many times has he said, I'm going to bring it back. And this is a picture uh, of, of God bringing it back. Uh, now to wrap up, we just want to think about the historical and the redemptive aspects of the passage. In history, it happened. They were brought back, they built the temple, they built the wall, and they stayed there. In redemption, this fits into God's plan for redemption as well. Our own experience, our own history, our own uh, <coughs> ideas about earthly events and the spread of wickedness have us on alert, don't they? 
And Jesus said, <coughs> watch and pray. All these terrible things that happen, all the signs of the end, and that's what he told the disciples. Watch and pray. Don't let the day of the Lord that's going to come like a thief of the night take you unaware. You know the parable. If you knew at 3.05 a.m. somebody was going to break into your house, at 3 o'clock you'd get up and get armed, get ready. Watch and pray. Historically, those events happened. Everything was built. In both cases, in the historical and in the redemptive, the great catalyst is the coming of the king, is the promise of the coming of the king. And we know that he already did it. We know by faith and by the reliability of the gospels that those people actually sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They did it. It was a historical event. But that tells us about our redemption because only a week later, the price of our sins was paid for. And the humble servant on the donkey became the humble man on the cross and then was victorious over everything at the resurrection and brought the peace that we need. Peace with God. Romans 5 says, you have peace with God. How is that possible for sinners? Amen. God demonstrates his love towards us because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And he says, here, here's your peace. Here's your salvation. Here's your redemption. Paul says, God knows what you're like. He demonstrates his love because while you were ungodly, while you were a rebel, Christ died for the ungodly. The cry, Hosanna to the son of David, shows that the Israelites of the day, they were looking for the king. We, we should be able to say it too. We should be able to say, praise the Lord, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming again. And, and the prophecy was being fulfilled right before their eyes. Somebody, somebody in the crowd, somebody knew, this is Zechariah 9. Well, the, the, the verses weren't there probably, right? This is what Zechariah said. But as we saw, their overwhelming bias and their desire was toward a physical king. And, and a week later, a week later, they capitulated to pressure, didn't they? You remember, Gary makes an excellent point. He comes to the triumphal entry. He goes to the city and then just goes back to the, goes back to the to Bethany or to the garden, just like disappears. All the, all the fanfare and all this exciting stuff is over. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and we know that. And as we close and think of the redemptive aspects, the commentaries begin with the coming of the king. And it's the first of many spiritual blessings. And Hawker says, for although the church has no prisoners, yet till Christ brings out his church in every individual instance of it, Every child of God is by nature a prisoner of sin and Satan. And this indeed is a pit where there is no water. And he summarizes his whole section by saying, What is this stronghold but the hold of salvation in Jesus? Go to the stronghold. Go to Jerusalem. Build it up. 
or Hawker says, go to Jesus Christ, there's no other stronghold. And who can turn in this but the soul made willing? But observe the promise to this purpose, I will give you double. Who promises it but Jehovah? Greece shall bend to Zion because the Lord's hand shall be seen in that dispensation. The trumpet of the everlasting gospel will be heard. The whole work, the whole glory is the Lord's. And the beauty and loveliness of Christ shall be known, felt, and adored in that day. That's the goal. To know, to feel, and adore the Savior who comes. And the wine of the gospel shall be drank. And the love of Christ be sought after as the chief good. He finishes and says, Remarkable to this purpose was the pouring out of the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and from that period to the present, present, and so on, as long as the church continues on the earth in the glorifying of Christ, who is people's view, and forming him in their hearts, uh, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for these mercies. We're thankful for these uh, concluding thoughts. We see that all history moves uh, towards the glory of our Savior. All history anticipates his full and final victory over every enemy, every roadblock in our way, every attack of Satan, every attack of persecutors. We are thankful for the hope that the church has in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.